0: Most of the people with money has either stole it or cheated or something to have it. Knowing who you serve sort of dictates how you serve them, right? It's just that it's just that simple.
1: Hey,
2: it's Damon, and I'm Daniel,
1: and welcome to Climate Change Makers, presented by Elevate Energy.
2: For 20 years, Elevate Energy has been building equity through climate action by improving quality of life for underserved communities, helping them save money, improve their environment, and access workforce opportunities that will be part of tackling climate change.
1: As they move into this next decade of their work, they're looking to learn from their fellow community members who are equitably transforming the environmental legacy of their homes, neighborhoods, cities, spaces, futures, and have brought the two of us in to help.
2: Nice to be here. You know, we host a weekly radio show and podcast called Ergo here in Chicago, And we're excited to be doing that work around climate change and environmental justice with Elevate. We've been talking with some of Illinois' most impactful environmental justice visionaries who have been working to build a more equitable and sustainable world and have been exploring what ideas guide their work, which strategies have been effective, and what advice they have for Elevate Energy as the organization works to put people and the planet first in the fight to build equity through climate action. This episode's guest is Patricia Abrams. Patricia is the founder and executive director of the Renaissance Collaborative, a community-based organization that's provided affordable housing, workplace development, and educational services to over a 1,000 individuals annually in Bronzeville and its adjacent communities for the past 27 years.
1: We had a really beautiful conversation with Miss... I I, I feel like a miss is appropriate.
2: Okay. (laughs) We had a beautiful... I trust your judgment. We had a beautiful
1: conversation with Miss Patricia. You know, really an intergenerational experience. We were able to talk about the last 30 to 40 years of how city politics, housing, energy work all intersect, Um, the ways that, like... Folks in community must accept their reality in order to engage systems that harm people. And really what her central claim was, we need to value human beings. We need to value people. And the wisdom was really an honor to be able to soak in and capture.
2: We started this conversation with Patricia with the same question that we've started all of our interviews. And that was, in this time, this moment, this season, how is the world treating her? And how is she treating the world?
0: Well, I think the world is treating us just fine. We have our financial issues like everybody else, given the lack of an economy and uncertainty about funders and all that stuff. But our most important efforts is always around our residents. And so the staff is working to ensure that our residents are well during this period of uncertainty. We've had to postpone some of our other workforce initiatives as we I uh, can't have meetings outside of Zoom, and sometimes those don't quite work as well as the in-person meetings. So we've postponed some things. Although with the energy team around workforce, we were doing Zoom meetings before the, the pandemic or the mm-hmm. COVID-19 experience.
2: So let's, let's zoom out a little bit real quick just to give people a little bit of a framework because um, you – as I think is appropriate with your work, jump from a a me to a we very quickly. Sure. Uh, And I I know your work really is um, in collaboration with so many people. So for Mm -hmm. those who aren't familiar, one, like what's the the kind of short description, you know, the the one sense of what it is you do, but more importantly, how do you see your work uh, contributing to the whole of of the work that you're part of?
0: So, TRC is a collaboration of four historical churches in Bronzeville. That's the first thing you need to know. And we came together to save the historic Warbash YMCA. And it became a place, renaissance really mean a a place to start over. So we deal with chronic homeless individuals here. We have 101 units of chronic homeless housing. And then our next project was a ground up development of uh, 71 units of low income senior housing. In both buildings, we see those communities as being the most vulnerable in our society, um, in terms of needing support, needing health, needing ways of reducing their overall um, cost of living. So we've done a number of things to help address that. Uh, over here, for instance, we have a community garden, which also acts as a therapeutic garden for some of our residents. Um, to work in the gardens, very therapeutic. And it's also an organic garden, so it allows people to eat the vegetables that just generated from that. Elevate was responsible for us getting a solar flower from Mohawk. It was the first community uh, flower that they installed, so it's installed in our organic garden. Um, and so it helps re- reduce the electrical costs here. Uh, which was the point of putting it in. Um, whenever we can save money on utilities, it is a dollar that can be contributed to, to, to the mission. We've worked with Elevate on reducing energy consumption at both buildings through various grants from the state. So they've been able to do um, some LED lighting in some of the common areas as well as a way of reducing our, our consumption. We're one of the few uh, small Uh, companies that are a member of the National Better Buildings Challenge. That's a national kind of uh, effort to reduce um, overall consumption of energy and carbon footprint. And that includes industry, hospitals, uh, municipalities, the works. So we started out, I mean, I started out very concerned about energy, um, simply because I am a product of the Center for Neighborhood Technology. So when we did our first Building, I secured uh, grant funds from the state to make sure that the materials that were used were a step above the regular kind of rehab, but had the energy efficiency component in there. Uh, We've done a lot of work with Elevate and others around uh, training seniors who are the ones who are most impacted by having to pay their electric bills. They're generally not common electrical for senior buildings. They have their own individual meters in in 202s, which are uh, low-income senior housing. Um, So having them uh, understand how to have comfort without having high electric bills is one of the things that we started to do three or four years ago, and we've stopped, but we need to start that effort again, and we probably will. Uh, when uh, COVID is over and people are interested in gathering uh, both in buildings as well as in churches, which was our next targeted audience, because those are the individuals who need to know about energy conservation uh, as a way of reducing their operating costs or budgets. Um, In addition to that, we do workforce development, and we were working with Elevate, ComEd, to develop or to design a building with net zero. We were just in the process of, of arranging a meeting with all the other workforce agencies in the community to find out how we can collectively address uh, sustainability issues in the future and to see if there are collaborations that could be done in the community around sustainability efforts
2: Um, Sorry to cut in, but I I just want to circle back to something that you mentioned. In in all these places, you know, I, I hear this through line around centering sustainability as both, like, obviously better for the world, but also as a really important, like, practical tool for helping people be able to live and take care of themselves and their families. In your work and in your lens, how did that emerge as kind of central, as a really important piece of the pie? Was that always kind of a piece of how you imagined this work about providing what people need basically in order to live?
0: Um, not really. Initially, I was more focused on us as an organization and what we could bring to the table. Mm-hmm. Um, for this particular population, which is a chronic homeless population, we pay all the utility costs. They pay none. And they're also in uh project-based Section 8 buildings, so they pay 30% of whatever their income is for rent. So it's been on us to make sure the building was as energy efficient as possible and um, so that we don't have to keep asking for increases that they can't afford, right? That we're trying to get them back out in the community, being fully participating members of the community so the most that we can help them in terms of supporting them and having a budget and learning financial literacy and how, what they need to do in order to be back functioning in the community, in at market, or even in subsidized housing, is what we try and do. So um, our initial focus was really on us as an agency and what we needed to do. Um, we took that same kind of approach when we did the ground-up development of seniors. You know, we were uh, trying to think through what could we do that make the building most energy efficient. Um, And then we found out from working with those development entities that HUD won't let you do central electrical for seniors, which was interesting to me because seniors are the ones who spend a lot of their income on medical needs. And so most of them are on blood thinners or other kinds of medicines. As they get older, they get other health elements that sometimes make them colder than the normal population. So that led us to try to figure out, okay, what can we do as a landlord to help them be comfortable in their apartments without dialing up the thermostat, which they can't afford to pay the bill? Because we have seniors moving into our buildings where they can't get an electric bill in their name because they owe comment money. So we put their bill in our name and devise a budget where they pay a little bit at a time and they keep their current bill current. But we're, that's after doing everything that we can to to, to decrease uh, their energy consumption, including only using Energy Star appliances in their units.
1: Yeah, I, I just want to uh, thank you for all that information, first of all. But I, I want to take a step back uh, and and just acknowledge kind of this conversation and, and honor you a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh I think in our work, me me and Daniel, one of uh the limitations we are aware of uh is that we don't get enough time to 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 speak and be in dialogue and in discourse with our elders. And I, I use that word lovingly. Like I I I honor you and see you <laughs> as as an elder in our community. And so in just listening to you, one of the things I'm acknowledging um is that th- there is a comfort that you have just, like, accepting the reality of our systems and figuring out how to maneuver and navigate them uh, as a way that, like, I think a lot of my my peers uh, have not set- settled into, right? Like, there's a lot of frustration <laughs> um, and-, and discontent with systems, right? So as I hear you talking about, like, ComEd's policy or whatever right like my thinking is like ah that's so terrible we need to make sure that the whole world right. knows about that and we need to make like a, a hundred year plan to make sure that that can never happen to anybody again uh but listen to you your work is i have people who are living in these units who are cold right now right and so what right. i have to do exactly is figure right. out how to respond to that so uh, i i just want to honor what, what i'm hearing and honor the work that you're getting done um mm-hmm. and then ask you as somebody who's seeing these systems, you understand what HUD's talking about. I don't know nothing about what HUD's saying. You keep referencing the state and different agencies. I don't assume that you don't see the things that frustrate you, uh, but there's just a grace you have. Right. You're just moving through, through the work. Um, so can you kind of talk through that grace of moving through these large systems that are not, in my opinion, really designed to take care of our people, but you are figuring out how to use their resources to take care of your people? Does that, does that sound accurate?
0: That's exactly right. I mean, when you don't make provisions for how do you house people, it doesn't work. So we're we're having this conversation about a model demonstration for intergeneration you know, housing, and we get these banker types <laughs> who who are quickly to point out that will never work. And I said, you know, I spent my entire life listening to naysayers about what won't work. <laughs> but if you if you live like that, there would never be a way of addressing community needs right now, right? Policy is sort of like, I always tell people like religion, <laughs> it takes a long time <laughs> to get people to change their perspective. <laughs> and deep. so in the meantime, you have to acknowledge what the systems are and it, to no fault of their own. I mean, the people who work those systems are just ponds in the game, you know, they can try and be helpful, uh, but they can't really think about how they're going to change the system. That's not who they are as people. So I think you just learn to work with them and say, ask questions about what's possible. And they'll tell you, you know, if they think something is possible and say, yeah, we didn't even think about that or whatever, you know, so they're just people too. Uh, but they have a bunch of policies and structures that they are confined to live within, right? You just keep going. You can't be deterred by, uh, that system is in place and it's a barrier. Okay, it's a barrier, but then what else is possible that you can go forward on?
2: Yeah. No, I think, da- Damon, describing that, what you just described as grace is a really beautiful way to think about it. Uh I'm curious. Was there an era of of you doing the work where that, like, okay, well, what are you gonna do? Wasn't uh, as um, what was wasn't as tangible? Wasn't at the forefront? Basically, like, was there a period where like the frustration or the 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 pushback was more central to you and how you approach the work?
0: No, I mean, when I did this building, I was coming from uh, being the director at the Center for Neighborhood Technology, and at the center, we always thought about what might be possible, not what? what's the cookie cutter approach. So one of the board members, when I left, said, well, at least you got good training because it's like, whatever the barriers are, let's, let's just confront them head on and keep going. You know, when I first did this building, I'd never done a building where you needed subsidy. I, I'd worked in real estate before uh, as a developer, but uh, for-profit developers don't experience half the problems of a nonprofit who's trying to provide affordable housing as a way of solving a community problem. So what I said up front to the board was you can't address this as a market in, a, in the sense that people at the lower income scale don't have the money for you to just raise the rents when the cost of things go up. So you must work with government to be that arm of government providing for all the people of the city. And so you must never let the city forget that. That's the city's responsibility. Public or government responsibilities provide housing for all their people. And nonprofits are just a portion of that. You know, they they do part of it.
1: Yeah, it, it, yeah, it seems that the city has forgotten. <laughs> I, think it's safe, I, I know, right? I think right? it's safe to say that's not at the top of their list or, or their minds. That's
0: exactly <laughs> right. I, I mean... But if you listen to the rhetoric, you wouldn't know that yeah, because they're right. all saying that. But when it comes down to the minutiae of getting it done, there are a lot of pieces that has to be in place. It's like, a, you know, in the nonprofit sector, we call it creating a patchwork quilt because mm. there are pieces you get from different funding sources in order to uh, come up with a scenario that funds the development. You know, when you're in the for-profit arena You just figure out what the market is and how much you're going to be able to generate in the way of profits, uh, what the rents have to be in order to pay your note. It's a different world because there are people who make a lot of money so they can afford what you develop. Then there are other people who makes hardly any money, but they still need housing. So if that's the arena you decide to play in, uh, you just have to know that you're going to be struggling the entire way and there was a lot of skepticism since we never you know in the city even said it we we'd never worked together as four churches to do a six flat and we were trying to do this historic building with 101 units and they kept saying you guys have no history in doing this and i said you're gonna make us jump through as many hoops if we have a six flat we might as well have some units to show for yeah, it big, when yeah. we finish so let's go for the hundred
2: yeah so before we go back to the 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 ideas of it I want to talk about the building in particular so a few years back I had the opportunity to produce an event Uh, it was a block party for the Poetry Foundation that was uh, Mm -hmm. out front and we used the inside of the building a little bit Um, and even just in going and preparing and working with you and your staff and meeting and planning it it's a really remarkable space uh, both in terms of the work that it does and what you're describing but really just the way that it feels when you walk in it has that Mm -hmm. um I use sacred not necessarily in the religious way, but in that way of like it's set separate from the rest of the of everything around it, and set separate from the way that it feels when you walk into you know an office building or an administrative building. What was your experience the first time you walked into that building, and when was it?
0: That's a long journey. I mean, I actually started this journey with this building in '92, and issued we issued an invitation to all the churches in the area to join us, St. Thomas next door. Um St. Thomas had acquired this building in 84 when the Y decided to close the building. And the Y gave it to the church for a dollar, but they had sold the rights to the building for, so that people were coming in and stripping it of everything. So we thought we were going to be able to do a shelter in the community. We weren't. When we figured out how much the city was going to require of us to get it in a point at a point where we could use it as a shelter... We decided to just close it up and go for the full amount to restore the building completely. But it was an interesting journey because between 91 and, say, 96, 97, we spent the time as four churches really thinking about who would we serve, who could who could we most impact in this community by serving what population. You know, because I always tell people, never bring money into the conversation until you got a vision. Because money destroys vision quickly. People start thinking, hey, they got some money. Let's go with that. And I'm thinking, wrong answer. <laughs> you know, you don't lead with money. You have to lead with where you think you're going and what's the purpose of the money. In the meantime, I met a lot of people. If they were like 55 and older, they learned to swim in this building. Because this was the only building in the city that where they could swim. This was the first people of color building in the Midwest. And when we first decided to save the building, CNN did a story and it was aired nationally, apparently. So this Native American man from Alaska called and said he had seen the piece on CNN and he actually lived in the building when he was in Chicago and he was so happy that people were going to try and save it. And so you, when you, when you have those experiences with people, That was my charge. The person who was trying to put the pieces together to save the building. So I've been on this journey about this building for a very long time. As men say, probably over half of my work life has been saving this building, recreating what was. This building served as a place in the Great Migration where African-Americans came from the South to get different kinds of training so that they could go ahead and become wherever they said they wanted to be. So this was their Renaissance, which is why we call ourselves the Renaissance Collaborative. And so the building is symbolic, if you will, of our our work.
1: Yeah. So so, so beautiful. Um, Like, you know, folks are listening and won't be able to see you, but just like looking at you right now, like I see the pride and like the love 92, just to, Again, be fully transparent, is the year I was born. Right. So just to really? yeah, so just to like put the context of this conversation of the legacy, right? Like we're now talking about twenty-seven, really thirty, thirty-five years of work. Um, and so that's just encouraging to hear as somebody who spent like the last five, six years trying to impact society and community and the frustration I think that like again, I feel like I'm doing this generational talk, but like the frustration I see my peers <laughs> have is so, like we're banging our heads on the wall because the things over the last eighteen months haven't really like <laughs> fallen into place yet. Uh, and, and so just hearing um the long arc you mentioned words like obstacle, barrier. You talked about the air quote banker types that I I I hear you mm-hmm. saying are being obstructionist uh and and so like that's the the type of lesson that i'm trying to like Gather from this conversation. It's like, all right, we're talking about a thirty-year project, so to speak, that has spawned other work, spawned other projects. But along the line, the system is not designed for you to do what y'all are doing, and y'all, you have figured out ways to make it exist. Um, and so, mm-hmm. I don't even have the technical knowledge to make that question more specific. I just want to name that what I'm doing here right now is just trying to learn at your feet of of how these little steps play towards this larger picture or this larger landscape of making the the difficult possible?
0: Well, it first comes in the reality that professionals go to school. <laughs> and teachers, <laughs> they do. They go to school and they're taught certain things. And, you know, I, I remember being on a wilderness retreat in uh, northern New Mexico. And this man and his wife who, who did... Um, Sessions with nonprofits nationally said to me, the biggest impediment on the vision of the churches will be that you need to hire social workers and social workers are trained in school to make people feel that they could not have life without them. Mm. So they want people to depend upon them. So you first got to come to grips with that. It's understanding like bankers, bankers go to business school. And the teachers have a certain philosophy about how you run a good business. And it's not about social anything. I mean, America <laughs> hates socialism, period. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we learned, we learned that I learned that when I was at CNT. We um, developed this program around energy while I was there. And we had the city put in $10 million, and people's energy put in $5 million to create this bot to do energy work at um, buildings and communities. And then people's energy said- When was this? Just, said, to,
1: just to get a sense of the time? Oh,
0: this was in the 80s. Okay. <laughs> then people's energy said, well, we're going to have to let everybody who's a customer participate. And the last building I remember doing was on like 300 or thirty hundred. North Michigan Avenue or Lakeshore Drive, because Mm -hmm. they also were customers. So they were able to get this low interest, no interest loan (laughs) that we had worked so hard to do. And we tried to go back to council to say there should be some restrictions on who can take advantage of this. And council said, wait a minute, we're not socialists. We can't tell people what to do. You know, if in all fairness, if if they pay a gas bill, they should be eligible to participate. So I learned from that. You can have good intentions, but the outcomes have un, unintentional consequences. Yeah. But you have to figure out if it's worth doing it anyway.
2: Yeah. So in that spirit, this is a very uh this is not my best question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> As someone who's doing work with a lens of trying to impact people's lives and the communities Mm -hmm. around you, do you ever just get really, really annoyed at people taking advantage? Great question. Yeah. That's a great question. (laughs) You build these structures like what you just described that have all of this intention and process to it, and then people see it as an opportunity. It's got to drive you crazy. It
0: does, but you know... It's one of those things that you have to say, you have to balance out. Is it still worth it? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like um, I, I've, been, I've been around long enough to, to understand the political framework in which we live. And I remember saying to the board about our development of, of our senior building. Well, we can fight City Hall and we could win. But then you're going to go back to City Hall and ask them for the money to support the seniors that you're trying to provide housing for. And they're not going to give you any because you've been thrown in their side. So they're going to not fund your project. So you always have to say, is my real goal to help the people or is it to cause trouble with the people who I'm supposed to partner with?
1: Mm, mm. That's such a conundrum, mm. though. because It is. Because City Hall is not a a, a passive entity and we could talk about no. the '80s, '90s, or right now, right? Like it, it don't, that, right. I guess that is the one constant in the city. Um, <laughs> it is. Is it, it's, it's not just you know ignorance or, or a lack of will, that exploitation that we're talking about, that taking advantage, mm-hmm. um, harm is really happening mm-hmm. in that space. So that that, that presents a conundrum of. They have the resources and power to immediately impact and benefit the people that I am accountable to. But with their resources yep. and power, they are actively harming the people that I'm trying to benefit and be accountable to. At least in my analysis,
2: and we're the ones giving them the resources, right? And, and, and power, right?
1: And so, and so, yeah. I, I, I hear that, and I want to, I want to pull that out a little bit more. Of if we're doing work that requires public support, we have to be mm-hmm. in some type of relationship with the state and with the the state in the big sense but like the city is what right. i'm calling the state um and so yeah just say a little bit more about that last statement you made of like if if we're expecting to be partners we can't be a thorn on their side uh but how do we do that without accommodating or allowing their harms to go unnamed
0: you can name them i mean i'm <laughs> always talking to my alderman about stuff like that but Anna Mandel has gone on record at council. She doesn't want any more affordable housing in her ward. And I've gone to talk to her about it. And she said, well, you know, affordability can't be restricted to one ward. It should be over all wards. For this ward to already have such a huge footprint of CHA-owned properties, uh, I really want to mix it up and have some market rate people in here. So for me, as a a nonprofit housing developer. I mean, I have people on my board who are those banker types who said, well, maybe we should approach the alderman in a different way and start doing mixed income development. And and I'm thinking, well, the market takes care of the mixed income or the higher ups. But I mean, there's the acknowledgement of where you are, What what can you do given the city is forever balancing out the large industry business concerns over the little people concerns. I tell people there used to be a time when corporate was concerned about community because uh, corporate understood that their workforce came from community areas. Um, That changed when we became a World Wide Web, where corporate could give less than two hoops about who the community is because they have community all over the world. They don't really think in terms of who, Are people in the community that needs the support of corporate. But there used to be a gathering back in the 70s and early 80s. There used to be a a meeting that happened between corporate and community nonprofits to talk about the city, the civic responsibility of corporate as it related to the city's growth and development. That went out a long time ago. Companies start buying out other companies and it's more of a global kind of issue. And, you know, nobody really seemed to care about what's happening in the communities.
2: And I could imagine, you know, they're less accountable to their workforce because if they need it, they can get a workforce in another country where there aren't that kinds of restrictions on them extract.
0: That's exactly right. And they then they'll move jobs to other places in the world where they don't have to participate And still make money because, you know, back then, at least it was a dialogue and people cared about workforce and people. And we've gone from that all all the way from that to I'm only concerned about my shareholders and their rights and how much money my shareholders earn.
1: So, So we got some 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 really great and substantial threads going right now. And I want to try to, like, collide some of those threads into a really big question. Is that okay? Sure. <laughs> All right. So I-, I hear us talking about housing as a need, right? And everyone needs shelter and how our systems and how local markets are not adequately providing that. We're also talking about, like, energy sustainability. Um, Just right now, we started talking about, like, the labor market a little bit and, like, multinational right. corporate power and the ability for capital mm-hmm. to travel. Um, And so, you know, you are of power in the city you, you you are a part of, and you have a board, you have an institution, you have an organization um, that is working to, to meet these needs. Um, in your space, whether we're talking about energy, whether we're talking about housing, whether we're talking about community, where does capitalism as a system and like naming that structure uh, come into play? Because as I hear all these things, it sounds like we're talking about capitalism is destroying the world and people. Um, and to be mm-hmm. a little bit honest, what I think the critique of non-profit spaces has been in general is that they they can function as a, a PR arm of capital um, that will mm-hmm. not challenge these destructive forces, but instead accommodate for them uh, or, or allow things to kind of like massage over. And I hear you kind of like trifling with some of that. So I'm, I'm going to ask the big question of like, where does capitalism come in in your conversations?
2: He dropped the C word.
0: <laughs> I think. I think it always has to come in because that's the economy that we find ourselves in, but we have to be more um, innovative about what you do about that. I mean, the homeless populations could be trained to be your labor market to repair and to fix up some of these um, homes in an energy efficient manner. And it becomes their home as opposed to the homeless situation keeps getting bigger and bigger. And now they're having, You know, big conglomerates, again, buying up real estate in bulk. And they're the ones who are getting the breaks. And the people aren't thinking about it from um, a human perspective, in terms of human capital, what's needed. Um, They're spending the money. It's just that they're doing it in so-called big chunks. It's sort of like when the PPP started. I mean, the big banks gobbled up all the money for their uh, multinational, multi-million dollar corporate clients. And they didn't think about the little people. Well, it's the little people who are going to hurt the most. And it's just a different lens in terms of how you see stuff. When we start talking about the workforce program, we've definitely been focused on construction because construction is a way for people with limited education to earn a decent wage. You know, so I think there is a way of dealing with capitalism, which is the system we find ourselves in. And resolving some of the the issues, but I think it requires a much more comprehensive look and see. I mean, people keep asking me now, what's going to be different after COVID nineteen? Are you going to be able to get African Americans to eat better, or to do this better, or have better medical? You know what I'm thinking? Those are systems that are in place. Like I heard the guy this morning talking about how the hospitals were. Uh, paid less on the South side than they're paid for the same procedure on the North side. And I said, well, hell, who doesn't know that (laughs) they, the CHA has (laughs) always uh, paid people on the North side for housing more than they have people on the South side. That's just a reality. So as long as people value people based on location and who lives there, you're going to always have these inequities and yeah. it's not just something local it is a national kind of issue
2: one of the things so a friend of ours who's been on the show tanika lewis johnson who's done the folded map project uh she recently shared like a series of maps of the city mm-hmm. that are kind of like color coded for and, and each one is for a different disparity basically right but in all of these, you could just use the same map, right? Like the, the lines of right. it, we That's could exactly save so right. much money on printing costs, <laughs>
0: yeah. if you could just ranks.
2: use the same, exactly, like the same map, and, and you can, you know, it is part of the uniqueness, but also why Chicago is important, is because it's this microcosm of the way that we empower inequality, basically. It's along true. Along all these lines, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's true. Um, I had a friend of mine who's a retiree, sent me a study. I don't even remember who did the study Dale. And it said, African-American leadership nonprofits get less funding than majority-led nonprofits. And I said, and that's news? <laughs> I did that when I was at the center in the 80s. In the, and I said, nothing changed in the in those 30s years. Nothing changed. So why would this be new to me? Do you know what I mean? It's like, as a senior used to say to me, it's the same old soup warmed over.
1: (laughs) 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 So, so I I hear you saying so much is the same, right? Like if we look Mm -hmm. at these last 30, 40 years, uh, the structures that were embedded have sustained themselves, have grown, have perpetuated. And so we see these outcomes, we see these disparities, we see these policies and processes um, that feels like they're stuck in time, right? Like, We can go and look and what people are using dial-up internet or using house kitchen phones, right? And like the same things we're we're, we're matriculating. Uh, But however, there has been a major change in our environment and in some of the Mm -hmm. results, uh, particularly Mm -hmm. around the understanding of the looming threat of climate change. So as somebody who's been working in the energy field, if we want to call it that, for you know Mm -hmm. longer than i've been alive (laughs) and it's been connected to this very micro focus of like housing and residency there's now this like new discourse around climate, around energy uh, that's really framed as like a youth thing. Cause it's like, oh, mm-hmm. elder generations don't care or it does not affect them. And this is something that's about to be a catastrophe in 40 years. So now like teenagers and the young 20 somethings that ain't got no real job yet are like really <laughs> <laughs> upset <laughs> and, and, and making their voice heard. And that's usually like how the conversation is like framed. Uh, but you mm-hmm. have a very interesting position cause you've been there, you've been here doing the work And you've been able to see this discourse kind of, like, evolve and change. And I'm sure every four or five years, there's a new 60-minute story that, like, people start freaking out about, you know, but but there's Mm -hmm. a consistency that you have. So I'm interested in your perspective as we're right now talking about energy in a global sense. How has that affected your work or perspective?
0: I, I think it's really the same. I'm a member of the Episcopal Church, and several, maybe decades ago now, Um, there was this interest in being involved in economic environmental justice. And I said, I don't see how I can join this uh, women's group around environmental justice when the corporate presidents of some of these major corporations are dumping on people of color in different parts of the world. So it's not like we see ourselves connected to our brothers abroad. We just see, you know, this is good for America. So we're going to ship our garbage somewhere. We're going to do this. And, you know, there was no concern about water contamination in other parts of the world. It was more about we're deciding we're going to participate in an environmental agenda. But the environmental agenda was we need to plant trees, we need to start using styrofoam, we need to do, I mean, it was things that might help America, but it wasn't like the real environmental justice or injustices were, were happening abroad. I worked on a project when I was at the center for a, a community that was out in the southeast side of Chicago, and it was so polluted that I just thought the government should have been ashamed of themselves for putting people there to live because grass wouldn't even grow there. And the only thing the people thought was a win, which really got on my nerves, rather than demanding that the government move them, they got a health center so that they could get their kids to a health facility when they had an asthma outbreak or something and the child wouldn't die. I mean, that, I guess, is important but it didn't really address the issue, you know? And it was like, okay, these people are poor. And so it's the same thing of how people in America treat global people, right? It, it's not affecting us. So why do you care that it's affecting them? Again, it's our bottom line that we're, we're concerned about. And so um, I just couldn't join that group because I just thought, they were intentionally being limited in their scope. And so I said, I would feel better if you guys go home and talk to your husbands who run these multi corporations about why do you feel it's okay to harm other people?
2: Mm. Mm.
0: And they thought that was really a too far out. I mean, why would you talk count? to
2: my husband?
0: <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, it it was, it was not something that they were prepared to be involved in. My whole thing is why you going to pray if you don't really believe that. Don't pray it. Just go, go somewhere else.
2: Well, and it's the same kind of assessment that you talked about doing when, you know, starting to think about what this building could do, right? It's who are the people Mm -hmm. who are most impacted by these structures and what are the things that we can provide to address the needs in their life, as opposed to what Mm -hmm. are the things that'll make us feel better, you know?
0: Mhm. Well even here it's always we understand that we we swim upstream. The federal agenda for the people we serve say you should let people use drugs as long as they want to use drugs until they decide they want to stop using drugs and you can help them. Our philosophy is do you know where we are? Do you think people are just going to voluntarily give up drugs? Most of them die before they give up drugs. But you can't get angry at the fact that understanding what their issues are and you're not addressing them. You just need to knowing who you serve sort of dictates how you serve them, right? That's it's just beautiful. that yeah. it's just that simple.
1: Yeah. So <clears throat> what 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 I'm hearing is this through thread about we have to acknowledge and accept realities, and in doing that, mm-hmm. then we can take steps to maneuver or provide larger interventions. So as we we kind of transition into the conversation around drugs, one just want to uplift that pretty much all research confirms that, uh, drug use is directly connected to trauma, uh, and, and other mental health mm-hmm. issues. So it's not just like a, a straightforward. And what I hear you kind of speaking towards is not like, Rational desire, right? And so, just like this idea right. that if we just create a rational environment, um, the problem will mm-hmm. go away. Uh, I think we see in other parts of the world that we have to create structures and systems and healthcare. Um, and if you provide the, the correct environment, folks can recover um, and, and rehabilitate their body and social and spiritual life. Uh, and, and, right. and I hear you as that as like a, an emblem or, or, or an example of the way we need to be responsive, adaptive, uh, innovative is something you've also mm-hmm. said. Um, Uh, But there needs to be this intervention that takes place. Um, And so one of the things you you said a lot is, one, the role of government. Uh, I I hear you saying that government needs to be responsible and responsive and intervene in the harms that disrupt our abilities to live healthily. Uh, I I hear you talk about corporations Mm -hmm. who have a a directly capitalist interest. And, And what I think I hear you saying is, like, at least move to the side or know that all space isn't your space. You can't profit off everybody. We have to take care of people. But then there's this. third element that's kind of in in your world that you've mentioned, um, and that's the church. And so I, I want to mm-hmm. bring that in briefly because um, what I can take from your example is what you're saying is that spiritual community-based faith-based organizations and institutions also have a responsibility to be addressing the housing of our people, to be addressing mm-hmm. what's happening to the planet, right? If we believe that this is God's earth, then we have a responsibility mm-hmm. to maintain it. Um, just, just speak a little bit more about the role of the church. Cause I don't think that conversation happens a lot. I think we think of the church as an anti-environmental, space in like the, the national conversation and I think you are providing an example yeah. that really complicates that
0: Right, when I was at CT, it was interesting that we went to several hmm, convenings uh, by the Lutheran Church and it was interesting, it was interfaith, it was interesting that Christians was the one group that really didn't think a lot about the environment.
1: <laughs> that is interesting
0: <laughs> I mean it was very interesting, I mean but again, it was very selective on what they wanted to focus on. And you can't focus on environmental justice if you're not focusing on economic justice and the other things as well. So churches are just filled with people. They're not like separate people. Do you understand? I mean, they're, they're just people. <laughs> I do. And as such, right. <laughs> yeah, as such, they pick and choose what parts of environmental stuff that they want to be involved in.
2: So as we're, as we're winding down, I want to, we've, we've kind of just been like mining for wisdom through this conversation and and perspective from someone who's been doing this for a much longer and, and in this really impactful way. But what we've been asking everybody through this series, whether it's for elevate or just for other people kind of in that space, what are the lessons, advice or guidance that you want them to hear as they continue to rethink Uh, how to do their work more effectively to serve the needs of the people in their community?
0: I think, first of all, people have got to value people, and that includes corporate. The value that we place on humans have got to increase. I think that requires a lot of patience. Nothing that people have done in the past, you know, based on this country's history, is going to say that that's going to just automatically change. And, you know, I listened to this thought today about... And everybody is saying it. We're all in this together. But that doesn't mean people have stopped valuing people based on their economic standings or status, right? So I think we have to place much more emphasis on the human element. And that just required a different kind of way of thinking about things because humans ultimately... Is responsible for capitalism and the bottom line, but you you have to value the human beings who are doing the work. And, you know, I think about when the labor movement first started and what was going on then, and I think it's getting real close to that now where people think more about the bottom line and they do the workers who are creating that bottom line. Mm-hmm. When our churches came together, it was recognizing that people who were homeless and were ex- Ex-offenders or drug users have had a break in their spiritual journey. So they were not just poor. They were poor because they had no spirit. Their spirit had been injured. And so we started this thing called the new you, which says, okay, let's look at where you've been in life and some of the barriers and, and what has contributed to that. And then let's think about how to make a new you starting today, because what you do today is your future or is your tomorrow. It requires something of people who are on that spectrum, uh, on the lower end to see themselves as having potential, but it also requires something of the people who are in policy and power to acknowledge that untapped resource is a strategy to increase their own bottom line, right? But you got to invest in it, which is not something that we do well. We don't invest in schools like that. We don't invest in medical care like that. We don't invest in anything like that, really. Um, (laughs) And it's sort of like this guy was saying um, on one of the late night shows, people in America continuously vote against their own self-interest because they have this thought that eventually they're going to be one of those people with the power. We're a country driven by greed, more so than by need, and thinking about what is the best interest for the country. I mean, that's really one of the reasons why we don't have universal health care. I mean, it's not about who we are as a group. And when I hear that we're all in it together, I'm thinking, no, we're not. (laughs) That's just not true.
1: So- I hear this larger national dynamic right of of greed over need that's a a very succinct, almost prophetic way to just name kind of everything that, that happens every every problem we've talked about can kind of be reduced to that need over greed so I, I want to just yeah. refocus back to think about the spaces that maybe understand that, that are trying to show up. Mm-hmm. We can use Elevate, even though I, I, I hear that y'all have a really great re- relationship as an example, but maybe mm-hmm. some of uh, the, the compatriots of folks who are in the energy nonprofit type space who showed up, who have some general understanding. Are there ways um, that that need over greed still seeps in unconsciously in the folks who show up to do this work?
0: It can. The people with the money may not share that value. Your values. And in order for you to exist, you got to figure out how you sustain yourselves in order to do the good work. You know, um, somebody's got to pay the bills. Sometimes it's about how do you impact those making those decisions to see things from a different perspective. But you can't always just go in with your agenda or you're going to lose because everybody has their own agenda, including the people in power. And so the only way that you can get them to see life your way is to figure out what their agenda is and how yours connect with it. Otherwise, you don't get the money you need to survive. I don't want to say they're greed. I'm just saying the the reality is most of the people with money has either stole it or cheated or something to have it. And so they're not going to be so interested in sharing it. That's not how they got it. (laughs) And so you have to figure out, okay, uh, what are their true thoughts or beliefs and how do what I want to do connect to that Mm. without naming it greed on their part? (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I had a medical doctor who is a head of a hospital and he said to me once, because he's also a clergy person, he said, there are days when I don't want to go to work because I know there are people who are going to show up who can't afford the medical cost. And the hospital just wanna be greedy. I mean, he said some days I want to know how much is enough? How much profit must you make to say, we have enough profit. Let's let's serve the people. It never is that conversation.
2: Right.
0: It's just not, you know, and so I'm saying that's a part of the capitalistic system that everybody feels like they need more. And they may die tonight, but they still want more because they're never sure what might happen that may require they need more or have more. I I don't know. I mean, I just sort of look at things differently by saying, well, you might die tonight. So what would you need more of? I would think you need more peace of mind and more (laughs) relationships and stuff like that, more so than money because I always tell my grandson, money is an exchange. You can't do very much with it, but exchange it for something else that you think is of value. So how do we value people?
2: Wow, what a talk with Patricia Abrams.
1: Ooh, I feel fed. I'm grateful to Elevate for this partnership. Um, this Maker series is amazing. and We wouldn't have had this conversation without our folks over at Elevate.
2: So thank you all so much for all the work that you do. You can find out more about the Climate Changemaker series and everything that Elevate Energy is doing for their 20th anniversary at elevateenergy.org. Make sure that you subscribe, comment, rate, and review the Climate Changemakers podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you've chosen to listen to our voices. Um, you can follow us at Ergo Radio, ergoradio.com. And we just got one more episode coming for you in this five-part series. It's been a blast so far, and we'll talk to you next month. Much love to the people. Peace.